Welcome to Bang the Table Talks, a podcast that discusses the evolving world of community engagement. Explore and learn with us as we host conversations with leaders in community engagement, stakeholder consultation, and public participation. We'll discuss current trends, best practices, as well as tips, tools, and ideas for better engagement programs. Today I'm talking to Eddie Snow about the largest deliberative process undertaken within Australia, the development of Uluru's Statement of the Heart, and secondly, his tips around engaging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the First Nations people, the first inhabitants of this land, and the traditional owners of the land in which we gather today. I live and work in the traditional country of the Yugambeh people and respect their physical and spiritual connection to country. I'd also like to acknowledge Elders past, present and emerging across Australia. Our guest today is Eddie. He is an Indigenous academic lawyer and researcher and the Centre Manager for the Indigenous Law Centre at University of New South Wales. Eddie has worked in the education field, providing support to Indigenous students at Griffith University. He's also completing his PhD with Griffith Law School, focusing on a critique of Indigenous recognition and liberal rights discourse of Indigenous recognition. Oh, that's a mouthful. I'd like to hand over to Eddie. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, who's your mob and a bit about your background? I should say, to begin with, the the PhD is basically on constitutional reform or constitutional recognition. So if anyone asks, that's the short answer. My wife is always asking me for a um, one-sentence explanation that she can give to her colleagues and and everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I always have to complicate things. So, yeah, thank you for having me. My name's Eddie. I'm Wamba Wamba, First Nations from Riverina region, New South Wales, Victoria, Dinaliquin, Ichuka Mawama, uh, my family are from Munakala and Kamragunja down there and still have strong connections down there. My family still live there today, also based in Brisbane at the moment. Lovely. Constitution is, you know, no small feat. So can you tell me what's driven you to your PhD? What are you trying to uncover? Yeah, I was really kind of fascinated. I always wanted to study law. And when I kind of finally got there after a couple of other hurdles and, you know, studying a couple of other things as well, always just really interested in the kind of ultimate question of why or, you know, why we couldn't fix things or why reconciliation was such a problem or why something that shouldn't be so controversial still is. You know, everyone would kind of be familiar with the way things can come up come up as like cultural wars or you know we always hit this impasse where it seems it's kind of impossible to be able to get through and within law started to study a couple of different things constitutional law was one of these things because really the the theory behind it or where constitutions come from it talks about these kind of fundamental principles that kind of found or underlie us as a society and for me you know that became quite apparent to me that a lot of the issues that we have are because of this fundamental kind of grievance or issue that still hasn't been sorted out in Australia. So this original founding relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, you know, whether it's the British and then successive generations of other peoples that have come here as well, there's still very much this unresolved question over that foundation. Not so much from a legitimacy issue or, you know, who was here first or any of that kind of stuff, even though that is an important part of it. But how we operate together in a relationship and a functioning society and you know it's very hard to have a relationship that's meaningful and that works and you know we're able to work together to be able to drive things forward if there's still that 
fundamental unresolved issue as part of that. So I got really kind of heavily interested in constitutional law specifically from that kind of angle. And it's kind of taken me down this path to where I am now as an advocate, I guess, for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I don't know, I guess some people would describe me as a constitutional scholar. It still doesn't, you know, it seems weird, like it doesn't quite fit kind of thing. But I guess that's, you know, I'm a public lawyer, constitutional scholar on, you know, what those founding principles of societies should be, especially between different peoples. Too much of trying to force Indigenous people to fit into a particular way. You know, how can we exist together as different peoples, but do that respectfully and and move forward? Great. And you mentioned Uluru Statement of the Heart. What What does that mean to you and how does this fit into the constitutional PhD that you're currently studying? Wow, big question. What does it mean? It means so much. I mean, very simply, it's it's that key or that mechanism to be able to refound that relationship. It fits within, you know, our constitution. It fits within the democracy that we have within a nation state, but it also is that unique, meaningful answer to Indigenous issues and Indigenous demands as well. And I think that's one of the, you know, not perhaps not perfect, but one of the, you know, the special unique things about it. It's a local solution to a very local issue. Very often, it's very easy to look to other jurisdictions and kind of try and transplant, you know, treaty agreements or other institutional things, you know, especially from America or Canada or New Zealand. But This is something, as you said in your introduction, that was developed out of this unique deliberative process with Indigenous peoples across the country, led, you know, each local community was able to pick who their delegates were, a deliberative process that led to this national convention. And we've had constitutional conventions in Australian history before, but we've never had one that was entirely dedicated to Indigenous peoples and that was run and led and, and written by Indigenous peoples as well. So when we talk about that kind of history and, you know, if we wanted to, as Indigenous peoples, we could have presented another kind of statement of claim that lists all our grievances and has all, all of the you know, all of the baggage and everything attached to it. And there are those parts in the Uluru Statement that talks to, you know, some of those harrowing kind of things about, you know, our disempowerment and the position of our young people and incarceration and everything else too. But fundamentally, and it's something that I've learned from the people that are in the process, um, Arnie Pat Anderson, Professor Megan Davis, is this invitation and this is expression of hope in Australian democracy and the Australian people that we can do this, we can reform this. And I think that's something quite beautiful about it. And also innately kind of practical is that it was issued to the Australian people, not to politicians. It's that fundamental idea about we are the Australian people. We have the power to be able to change this and to drive this. And, you know, politicians should be representing us and driving that forward. So I think more than anything else, you know, there's a lot of tangents I can run off on there, but it represents, you know, genuinely for me, that unique local opportunity to to drive past that impasse that we've been stuck at for so long. You mentioned a bit about the process of Uluru Statement of the Heart. Can you walk me through why did the committee go down this path of having regional dialogues and how people were selected to be a part of those dialogues? You know, what, what were some of the barriers? I guess because people, you know, being the table clients, for instance, are, are really looking for some guidance around how to engage with First Nations people yeah. in a really genuine way. Yeah, yeah. I think I might step back a little bit too before that because mm-hmm. I think it's an important part of the story before we get to the regional dialogues. Mm-hmm. So people, there's a popular kind of myth that some people like to bring up that, you know, constitutional reform is like a Howard government thing or a conservative thing or something like that. 
Constitutional reform for Indigenous peoples in this country has been, you know, a focus and on the table since Federation. So since 1901, even be- since, you know, before that, when we think about a constitution in its broader terms, and so not just the text we know it as today, but the constitution of what a society, you know, actually is and what the Australian colonies were. So we've been ag- advocating, you know, generationally for change to the Australian constitution to, to really drive through that recognition of who we are as unique peoples and for our rights, but then to really cement that as this permanent institution to be able to manage that relationship. And something that came out of the kind of difference in the changing politics with the end of the Howard government and the Rudd government coming in, there was this negotiated agreement some people might remember with some of the independents around the Gillard government and stuff like that too, and who was going to get in and whether they would win and stuff like that. Out of that came the expert panel for constitutional recognition. So that kind of really got it back on the table. Um, so Professor Davis, who's involved in the current process, was involved in that. That came up with a number of different options and it kind of you know swayed and went each way. And then the government came up with a process called Recognise. So some people might remember the R um, that was getting around and it proposed reforms to the constitution, but they were very symbolic. They didn't actually change any of the structure or didn't you know, implement anything substantive. It was more so you know, it might remove sections of the race power or something, which would then, without getting into a constitutional law lecture, which complicate things even more because then that would remove the power for the government to actually make laws based on Indigenous people or for Indigenous people. Two things as minimal as Indigenous people were here before, we're a multicultural country now, we move on together. So it didn't actually address the legitimate demands. And so recognize came to kind of be universally rejected by Indigenous and non-Indigenous people that were closely kind of attached to it and in the community as well. And out of that, there was a group of Indigenous leaders that met with Prime Minister Tony Abbott at the time and opposition leader Bill Shorten at Kirribilli House, I believe it was 2015. And it was basically, look, we need an Indigenous process where we can talk amongst ourselves, we can have, you know, have the arguments out, we can discuss what's going on, we need to own and control this process so we can actually understand what the community wants. And out of that, the Referendum Council was born. And then a little while longer, we get Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister, as so many may be aware of our changing politics in Australia. And the Referendum Council then engaged the IATSIS, which is the Australian and Torres Strait Islander Studies Centre place in, in Canberra, to help with that community engagement process. So they're, you know, with everything in this kind of processes, you'd love to be able to speak to everyone and to do everything. Limited resources, limited, you know, all those kind of things that always happen. So a model was designed, a lot of research went into, you know, what's the best practice around deliberative dialogues and enabling communities to be able to have a say and to own and control that space. And we ended up with 13 regional dialogues across the country, starting in Hobart and then kind of spreading out from there. There was a method that was used for the communities that IATSIS worked with communities to help them do that. Um, so I believe it was like 60% traditional owners and then community organisations and then other individuals that were invited. They went, I believe, for three to four days, so kind of, so kind of over a week. It involved civics education, it involved education on history, on the options for reform, and it involved an opportunity for those people to come up as representatives of their community and discuss what I wanted to talk about. A record of meeting was kept from all of them and then kind of collated together at the National Constitutional Convention. And each of those regional dialogues elected representatives from their dialogue to attend the National Convention. And then the National Convention was used to ratify 
and to endorse the options that came from the regional dialogues. So they got together, they spoke about what the key options were. And if anyone's interested, all this is in the um, final report of the Referendum Council. There's a really nice table that talks about what the preferences of each dialogue was. Mm -hmm. And the unanimous preference, you know, because treaty has been such a prominent kind of thing of Aboriginal activism and politics and everything for so long. And treaty actually came in second or third. So the ability to be able to have a say on policies that impact us and on the decisions that impact us every day in our community, that was the number one concern for everyone across the board. And so that combined with those kind of things that we're talking about, about the change in the constitution of the country and refounding that relationship, that's where that preference and that number one reform of a First Nations voice to parliament comes from. It provides that voice that people want or want to be able to be heard in the system. And then that kind of part, that next part there about being heard in the system, the structural form to empower it. And then, um, you know, many people might be familiar with the theme that comes out of the Lurustan from the heart, which is voice treaty truth. So voice is that structural reform that addresses those issues that enables that relationship to be refounded on that permanent institution. And then we can do, you know, those serious conversations that shouldn't be controversial anymore that need to happen about treaty and truth going forward. Great. And, and so you mentioned 60% were of the local community or the Indigenous community. How did they go about selecting that 60% or that cohort? So I could be, I could be wrong on that 60. I'm always terrible with, it, with those kind of details. But that was entirely up to the local communities. So this is one of the key, you know, things. And there has been, you know, some people have directed some criticism at it. And, um, you know, there was a small group that walked out of the National Convention. But something we try to emphasise too, you know, we're not all one homogenous group. We don't all agree you know, with one another and we should never be expected to agree with one another either. That's one of the issues in Indigenous affairs throughout you know, our history. But through this process that enabled communities through their self-determination, some principles from international law, from the Declaration of the Indigenous Rights, about free prior informed consent. So it was about, you know, enabling those communities themselves to have control and ownership of it and to be able to feed into that process. And, you know, the way we see it is, well, we, sorry, um, you know, I'm part of the ILC and part of the researchers in that team, but the people that participated in it and, um, you know, the research that we point to that enables that is that this has provided this deliberative process that comes out at a consensus option. Of course, there's always issues <laughs> around who gets to attend these things and, and who does these things. And, that's also been part of the broader, you know, kind of sphere of Indigenous politics throughout our history as well. We haven't had the substantive structural reforms needed to empower. We've been left to kind of fight over the scraps that have been left for us. And that really came through to them, what the dialogues were communicating. They're sick of people making decisions for them. They want to be genuinely consulted, not just, you know, token consult or have one or two people on an advisory panel kind of thing. And that was a principle and there's actually 10 key principles that underpinned the work of the Referendum Council and the regional dialogues themselves. So they're in the, in the Referendum Council report as well. People can, can look them up. But it was about ensuring Indigenous self-determination, ensuring that it you know, would fit within this process, ensuring that people were able to have their say and it would be deliberative. Um, so all throughout that process, you know, when we're talking about how we engage with Indigenous communities, there was this fundamental kind of protocol and um, position set in place that grounded everything that was done throughout that process. Mm -hmm. So you've been talking about reform and reform happening 
you know, pre-1901. So how did the team encourage elders and community members that this time the process and the outcomes were going to be different? Yeah, it's it's hard, right? And this is, um, again, I'll you know, bring her up because she's such a massive presence in this space and a mentor to me as well, Professor Megan Davis, something that she speaks about on. Yeah, we're asking our people to have hope and faith and, you know, in a system that has failed us continuously. But at the same time, that is also kind of the great thing about the law or, you know, this the legal system and, and democracy in this way is that there is still that promise of it. And we know that, it, you know, it can be delivered and it can be done if it's done better and done correctly and about going forward. And, you know, I was quite amazed... Um, I remember this moment in Cairns at a um, dialogue since Uluru that we attended. There's an 18 minute video. If anyone wants to view it, ulurustatement.org, it's, it's online. But it goes through this history of indigenous activism and how long these issues have been around. And some some of the elders that were in the room and some of the people that you know I'd only ever heard of before or seen in documentaries myself, you know, so I was a bit awestruck and you know just in amazement you know at their ability to continue on this struggle after so long you know they were one of the people in the room was involved in the national aboriginal consultative committee which was the kind of first body set up under the whitlam government in the 70s and stuff like that and just to hear we watched this video and he got up and he had some tears you know rolling down his face talking about the people that had passed away since and the struggle and how long it had gone and but for him, his involvement in this process and the fact that it was Indigenous led, that it was us together driving the agenda and, you know, that it was us putting our foot forward and saying, you know, enough is enough. And I think universally, when you when you hear these things spoken about, and even the um, Joint Select Committee, which was a bipartisan committee, ran in 2018, it released its report, recognised that for those reasons, the Uluru Statement was really a line in the sand in Australian reconciliation. It was a, you know, it's a, there's a clear kind of before Uluru and after Uluru marker of what the expectations of, of reform will be going forward and that it's not enough anymore to have, you know, really soft targets or nice words or a couple of advisory things. We, you know, we're talking serious substantive reform that actually listens and hears yeah not only listening but there's that idea about hearing too it's because you know we've been listened to and there's that myth that australians don't know but you know a lot of australians do know about our situation and the government knows and the bureaucracy knows it's not necessarily a problem with listening but it's the actual hearing and what they do with it and what happens to it when it gets within these structures so the kind of before and after Uluru is a really good way to think about it and it also, you know, emphasizes that Uluru didn't just come out of nowhere either. Um, and, you know, there was a couple of politicians at the time, you know, including the prime minister that said the referendum council had kind of stepped outside of their purview or, you know, and anyone with, you know, a remote bit of knowledge about Indigenous affairs would know that, you know, Uluru and the principles have always been there. It's always been what Aboriginal people have been calling for, what, what our right is, you know, what the demand is. And, but, you know, I think more importantly than any of those things, what the nation and what the country actually needs to be able to not just heal, but refound the relationship so it can continue into the future. And, um, you know, there's a number of other people that work in this space that talk about Uluru, the Uluru Statement, sorry, um, being a live political document. So it's not something whose time could necessarily come and go. It's, it's, a, it's a live principle thing that kind of undergrids the entire relationship that's always there. And, for me, Uluru so far has just been probably, you know, our best 
the least mm-hmm. contemporary expression of of that need for that to happen. And I guess the you had your dialogues, your regional dialogues, and then the the national dialogue in Uluru. How did the community or how did the project team gather all that feedback to write that statement? What was the process that that you guys undertook to create that, you know, that living, breathing document? So I, I, I guess I should clarify, I wasn't actually there. So my, my direct involvement in um, Uluru comes after the fact. It's probably, you know, one of my great regrets that I wasn't involved earlier because just to, to see it and to hear about it and to research it, it you know, such an amazing event that occurred in our history. But very similar to the, to the regional dialogues themselves. So that, that information was collated and reported to the convention itself, to the delegates, um, there were groups that were split up. There was a youth group that spoke specifically about the future and you know what they were going to do. And some people might know Sally Scales. She was one of the co-leaders of the youth group. You know, she's one of the youngest ever and female executive uh, chair of the executive board of the APY council. And so she's a fantastic you know voice representative for her community. And all of the you know voices in that room and like the dialogues but in a structured deliberative way had it out basically (laughs) over what those options were discussed what it was and then you know we've done similar processes since so the uluru dialogue group itself and and one that i facilitated writing a letter to the prime minister and the minister when they first announced their current process it's long it's difficult we sit in a room with our leadership and we go through the letters sentence by sentence and draft it and change it and um, you know, it's done in that deliberative group way, but you know, the time and the resources, you know, there's always those constraints, but if you're going to do it properly and if you're really serious about engaging and having that self-determined voice, then it's really the only way. And that's, you know, what the convention's purpose was to be able to come out at that statement point. And so people, you know, people will be probably familiar with the artwork now and everything that goes around it. And that was something that came about as a bit of an after thought or something that came organically out of the national convention itself but the 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 statement itself and the reform proposals that are contained within the referendum and council they're the things that represent you know all that work that went into the dialogues and the the deliberative kind of stuff and where people came out about what their options for reform were and so you've made the statement it's been three years since the the first convention What's been the process of keeping people engaged in this reform? And, you know, are you having regional dialogues now about what can we do in our own communities? What do they look like? And is that kind of speaking with councils or organisations to help with that reform? Yeah, definitely. It's been long. It's been hard. It also doesn't, like, sometimes it feels like it's been 30 years. Other times it feels like it's been three months, depending on what happens. So our immediate work at the Indigenous Law Centre. So the Indigenous Law Centre facilitated, you know, all the technical advice for the Referendum Council and under Professor Davis's directorship over the last kind of 10 years before that um, has kind of been a lead on on constitutional reform and and the rights of Indigenous peoples too. So we have continued that role post Uluru in partnership with the Uluru leadership or the Uluru dialogue members. So it's a core kind of group of the delegates that were there at the convention that have carried that work through. So through our philanthropic donations and you know, advocacy around those kind of areas and literally kind of on the smell of an oily rag, which many people would be used to, we, we get that group together. Unfortunately, COVID has kind of put a big dent in that this year. But last year, I think we had about four of those meetings. 
And then on top of that, we also had the youth dialogue group, which was the first time that we got a whole heap of youth together to put their position forward and to carry on. And then the idea with that too is that, you know, each of them can go back to their community and can start the process in their communities as well. And one of the fundamental things with the Uluru Statement is it's an invitation to Australian people for, you know, for a people's movement. We want people to be able to pick it up and run with it and to be able to do their stuff. So out of the ILC, um, you know, we've been doing more and more lately. All the, you know, very simple things that anyone can do across social media, um, signing up to mail lists, all that other kind of stuff. Just having conversations, you know, it seems really simple in such a technologically advanced age and everything else, but you know, each member of our community is member of a family, is member of another community, has networks into other places. So just having conversations with people, sharing the information. You know, it's one of our biggest things at the moment is the government's going ahead with a particular process that isn't what the Uluru Statement called for. It's, it's much more watered down I and mean, it doesn't address some of those fundamental issues. And so one of our biggest things is, especially from the ILC and the Uluru Dialogues perspective, is making sure that mandate and authority of Uluru is front and centre of everyone's mind when we're talking about reform, but also enabling people to bring other people along with them. So educating, you know, very simple information, conversations, why it matters, why it's important, you know, how change happens. Civics education isn't necessarily, you know, a strong point, I think, of Australian society either. So there's lots of complicated, sometimes conflicting conversations about sovereignty and the constitution and how these things work. And yeah, and there's a lot of, not angst, but just, you know, people are perplexed about why these issues haven't been sorted out already or why it's so hard. For me, as a constitutional lawyer and as a researcher, like I understand it and I, I get it. And, you know, sometimes I get very stuck in that space and it's about drawing myself back to, you know, someone that's not a constitutional scholar that asks, well, how come it works this way? How come it works that way? But it's, you know, the conversations we have with other people in the community that enable us to be able to spread that word. So since then, we've seen, um, you know, through some of those relationships and networks, the support for the Uluru Statement and the First Nations Voice grow massively, but also, you know, some pretty substantial key organisations that deal and work with community a lot, reaching out to us and asking, you know, what can we do to reform? So we've even had organisations reforming their own governance structures and their own organisational and how they go about doing things to big, so local governments, Brisbane City Council, you know, the largest local government in Australia, um, unanimously endorsed the Uluru Statement from the heart. We've been having conversations with them since then, continuing that on what are some practical measures coming out of that that we can kind of continue that conversation local government association of queensland so across the board endorsed there's a lot of you know one of the last ones um, that i was looking at just recently and refreshing the national rural health alliance so their members service i think up to nearly seven million people in remote regional rural australia every year yeah. and so those people that you know are in these organizations that work with people every day and are looking for well, we recognise that things don't work well, or how can we do it differently? But, you know, are committed to actually implementing some of those reforms as well. And the more the merrier, right? It helps spread the load. So anyone that wants to get involved and help out, we're always very happy to speak to. Great. And one thing you keep mentioning is conversations. So how do community engagement and communications professionals start to have conversations with Indigenous First Nations people? Um, where do they start? If you were to give them any advice around that is, is how do they start these conversations to build those relationships? I don't know, I think my advice might be a little bit different to some other people's, but my thing is always just 
be prepared to be wrong, be prepared to be told off. It's not you personally. It's a long, complicated history of a relationship that's impacting that immediate conversation you're having. But just be open to enabling that relationship and be entirely honest with that. You know, where we as a community are very cautious of people coming in and trying to do anything with us because we get made promises, we get told things all the time and things just don't eventuate and don't happen. So there's not that it will always happen, but there's automatically, you know, almost always a kind of sense of pessimism or not pessimism, but, you know, quite strong sense of you know, scepticism about people coming in and what they want to offer and what they want to do. But we're also not so different to everyone else as well. There's a lot of the problems we face are human problems that everyone else faces. It's just that we've experienced them uniquely because of our history um, and because of the impact of the different you know, societal attitudes towards us that continue today. Yeah, and then the cultural and traditional aspects as well that can still you know, change or influence someone's experience on that as well. So I think being as open as you can, being as honest as you can about expectations and what you're hoping to get out of it. But also, this is always a hard one too, because sometimes you just have no option with resources and time and everything else, but as flexible as you can be with, with those kinds of things. And if there are you know, very much hard limits on that, then just being upfront and honest with it, because the worst thing is to, you know, and I see this a lot, and it's one of my biggest things working with regional communities as well. Um, you know, so many times, you know, people overpromise because they're very keen and they really want to help and they really want to do something and it just doesn't eventuate in that way. We're not unreasonable people either, like anyone else. We get that, we understand, you know, we're all kind of trying to aim to be able to develop those things too. You know, so they're like some basic, I guess, broad principles, but also some specific things, I guess, from my own background in some of these things. Don't just appoint Indigenous people to be research assistants or to just be administrative type, you know, we're not, it's called black cladding in a lot of places, like, you know, we're about serious structural reform. If you just want, you know, a tick and flick kind of thing, don't bother because we've been doing that for 30 years and it hasn't worked and we're not interested in that anymore. And when we talk about that line in the sand kind of stuff about Uluru, about, you know, post and before and or other kind of stuff, that's something we're looking to do. And a perfect example of this is reconciliation action plans. And people might be familiar with what's happened with Rio Tinto lately and their explosion of the cultural heritage stuff. And, um, you know, Reconciliation Australia can come into a lot of criticism sometimes about the effectiveness of RAPs and whether or not they work. But, you know, a lot of us were very happy to see them act unilaterally and pretty quickly to remove their endorsement of Rio Tinto after the fact and just say, you know, no, this is not okay. And with the government, you know, we're talking about fundamental reforms of bureaucracy and government and stuff like that too. But the government putting a lot of expectations on organisations and companies these days that if you don't have a wrap or if you're not engaged in these things and you can't access, you know, so there's some substantive structural things that are happening. Those kind of actions actually can have real meaning for an organisation like Rio Tinto and for the community um, to see that going forward as well. Yeah. So hopefully out of that kind of waffling for a little bit, there's some stuff in there about how, how that can happen and come about. Yeah, look, and I think the biggest thing is just not knowing where to start, right? And you've, you've mentioned it's, it's just be upfront and okay with not getting it right all the time. Yeah, is those expectations that people can take into communities or um, I say communities, it doesn't matter whether it's urban, rural, regional, remote, like, mm -hmm. you know, 
we're not an alien species that the stereotypes, you know, you're going to be challenged very quickly if you go in with those views and stuff like that. So it's better to just say, look, I don't know. I'd like to do something. I'd like to help let the community, let the people make an informed decision for themselves on that. And it may be that they don't want to talk to you and they don't want to do that. And that may be perfectly fine too. It's about being able to develop a better relationship going forward so that things can happen into the future. And how do they respectfully go and find, you know, the right organisations or the right elders to speak to? Because, you know, Logan City Council, there's no native title claim as such, and so there's potentially four different tribes. And so as an engagement officer at Logan City, it's quite difficult to manage those nuances politically you know as you said we're we're all different kind of people and we have all different kind of views and so sometimes we don't help ourselves so how does an engagement professional or communications professional find those organizations or those people to speak to i think recognizing from the start that you know sometimes there probably will be situations where that is going to be almost impossible and it really is of just trying to work through that relationship the best you can but i think in most places that i've you know seen or worked or examples even if there's not a you know an identified traditional owner group or a native title group invariably there's always an organization a health service a school some kind of connection and you know just being respectful and responsible about your engagement with that as well and if there are multiple groups then you know being open and clear about that and discussing that through with those different groups it's very hard because everyone does want to do the right thing right and for good reasons we want to be able to do the right thing in these situations and sometimes the community politics because of our history because of impact of the situation where we've had to kind of fight over limited resources and the scraps that are left over for us those things can kind of be the perpetual conflicts but when we're talking about, you know, what the fundamental thing we're trying to do with Uluru and, you know, refounding that relationship and providing that permanent institution going forward, then there definitely is a role, I think, for someone like an Indigenous engagement officer within Logan City Council to be able to look at being a facilitator of that kind of process themselves within their own organisation, inviting those voices in, enabling and providing a space for that conversation to happen. And, you know, there doesn't have to be an answer or a result immediately it's about enabling the continuing conversation and that institutional mechanism for the relationship to actually occur and to continue and to to take place because without that we just end up at that impasse again always yeah and what is your opinion on indigenous or first nations people having access to the internet and you know we're we're at bang the tables a, a digital engagement company and so maybe this is a bit of a loaded question so do you think that indigenous australians are not interested in having conversations on a digital platform definitely not i've avoided facebook for a very long time because I was avoiding my family. So my apologies to my family and everyone. I'm trying to be productive on my PhD and everything. But um, if anyone knows, especially the Indigenous community, there's a whole lot of, you know, Facebook, I think, is like the home of Indigenous community presence in Australia anyway. It's not as, you know, the Indigenous community is much more active on Facebook than they are on Instagram or Twitter or some of the other ones. TikTok is amazing with the youth these days. But there's like Aboriginal closed groups, there's sovereignty groups, there's, you know, people are absolutely engaged. And I've got cousins 
you know, that live in remote communities in the Northern Territory that are on Facebook and um, Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and they're engaged on it all the time. Yeah, so there can be this kind of common misconception about people's level of engagement and everything else with it. And it's also, you know, one of the miraculous tools that we have with the technological age that enables better communication through our communities and stuff like that. Yeah, my experience is definitely Indigenous community want to and are engaged in that space and it is something that can be picked up. There is, of course, issues associated with a lot of, you know, the further out you get into rural and remote areas and stuff like that, like there are with anyone else. But, you know, there's some misconceptions sometimes about Indigenous communities not having access to it. And um, even when we think about it, you know, the largest population of Indigenous people is in New South Wales. And a lot of that area is in, you know, urban and semi-urban kind of built up areas too. Great. A couple of more questions. If you were to give some advice to anyone listening to this podcast of where they can go learn a little bit more about um, Australian Indigenous history, what resources do you recommend they read, watch, listen to? Wow. That's a, that's a big one. I, I got a Google Drive I can probably share with everyone and they can share in my mental pain with my PhD. I, I'm a big fan. I, I'm a bit of a visual learner. So reading hasn't always been my strong point, even though I'm you know, a lawyer and I'm doing a PhD and everything else. But um, there's some really good documentaries that just give, they're not basic, but they're, um, they're easily accessible. They give that right amount of depth of information. So First Australians, probably one that many people might already be familiar with. It's um, narrated and produced by Rachel Perkins, got a couple other you know, key people in it, Marcia Langton and stuff like that. I think it's like a six or a seven part series it's available freely online through sbs and there's a book that goes along with that as well but it does a really good job of telling the history of our relationship with non-indigenous australia from the beginning to to now or up into the you know mid 2000s but also embedding within that story you know some really strong cultural and traditional knowledge and the perspectives of indigenous people and where that comes from there's an earlier one from the 90s called frontier which is also quite good but there's some really good audio visual guides and then books beyond that there's just so many <laughs> i don't even know where to start i, I know um you know marcia langton has got another one out recently um called welcome to country um that goes along traces some of those things there's a lot of good literature in australia too from indigenous authors kim scott you know in particular is one of my favorites and carpenteria looks forward there's um you know there's so many but i i really recommend you know those first australians first australians is something that i've used with my students before that have got no knowledge or awareness of anything to do with indigenous australians at all and then beyond that if you look locally within your own area most organizations um land councils or groups like that will have information on their website and will have you know information booklets they've produced previously or something like that so i know um, where i'm from in denaliquin the yakawa the indigenous knowledge center there has a whole lot of you know specific information to that area that's available um, including an online language database where you can hear people narrating you know reading words out and stuff like that too yeah so there is you know quite a lot out there to help build knowledge along that pathway too great and last question, what's next for Uluru Statement of the Heart and how can people become involved and be engaged in your process? Uh, the government realises that what they're doing at the moment is incorrect. 
they announce the so First Nations voice to Parliament in the Constitution, we have a successful referendum, and we're all happy. <laughs> so at the moment, the government is continuing with their co-design process for a voice. Uh, their voice is a voice to government, not to Parliament. And there is a key difference. I think maybe, you know, some of your clients would probably understand that too with the kind of work that they do. On a principled level, you know, Parliament is supposed to be the representative place of Australian people and the government is responsible to Parliament. And then on, you know, another level is government and bureaucracy and being wrapped up in bureaucracy is so often being one of the key issues in Indigenous affairs. So adding another layer to that bureaucracy and then keeping it kind of hidden within government and not being responsible and transparent and accountable to parliament itself is a big issue. And we don't, um, you know, the research doesn't show that that's a good idea. And, and, you know, us that are involved with the Uluru Dialogue don't see that as being um, something we want. We see that as basically being more of the status quo kind of position at the moment. And if we want that refounding going forward. So they are continuing with that process and that process will go to public consultation, we believe in around July. So um, all Australians will have an opportunity, we believe, to, to have a say on that. Um, so we're encouraging people to read a little bit about the Uluru Summit from the Heart, engage with our social media, um, engage with other information out there, and to reiterate to the Minister and to that process, you support the Uluru Summit from the Heart in full, and that you support a First Nations voice to Parliament in the Constitution. The next step that the government has been talking about is a referendum. So the only way we can change our constitution is by referendum. Um, there's been, I think, 44 separate attempts to change the constitution. Only eight of them have been successful. So it's a hard task. You have to have this thing called a double majority, which means a majority of the people in the majority of the states voting yes. So the most successful referendum in our history was 1967, which was the Indigenous question. And it's popularly remembered, and some people might know it, you can Google it and you can see it. There, there were all these posters that was like a, a vote yes for Aborigines. So there was a kind of real social justice moment around it too. And that reform had been building for a long time before that, but all it really technically did was remove an exemption from what's called the race power in the constitution, enabling the Commonwealth government to make laws for Indigenous people. So previous to that, we were under the control of the states and territories entirely. And the race power said that the Commonwealth government could make laws for people of any race except for Aboriginal people. So it just removed that except for. Um, and then that's been how we have the Native Title Act, all those kind of different things that are aimed at Indigenous people specifically. The reason, you know, Uluru doesn't look at removing the race power, because obviously race is a, an outdated concept and everything else, and we're not interested in that, is... Whilst the race power is there and, you know, there's those technical issues around native title and stuff like that, it still doesn't address our fundamental issue, which is that original grievance and the position of Indigenous people in this country. So you could remove the race power, but then there would be nothing there and it would say nothing about us. You know, hopefully in the future, one day our constitution won't make reference to race at all. But the thing we're concerned with and what the consensus position coming out of that was, was that. The point, though, about the referendum is the government's only proposing a symbolic referendum again. So they just want, you know, perhaps some words that start in the preamble or a statement of recognition or something like that. And, you know, there's been this kind of difference between symbolic and practical reconciliation in Australia that doesn't really exist because something 
like a practical measure in the constitution that would create this permanent institution is also a very powerful symbol for Australian nation as well going forward. So it's that kind of perfect intersection of where symbolic and practical measures could be placed. So the government has put that off. They've said they're not going to have that referendum in this term of parliament because of the delays of COVID and everything else. But, you know, we would ask our supporters and people that are interested in getting involved, and we hope that will eventually be all or the majority of Australians, um, that not only do you express you know, your support for a First Nations voice in the Constitution and, and to Parliament, sorry, um, but that you also make it clear that you, know, you would support a referendum on establishing that and not symbolic reform. And so that's one of the you know, key kind of sayings and statements that comes out of Uluru too. It's about substantive structural reforms and words aren't enough anymore. Brilliant. Well, thank you for your time. Hopefully, uh, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast can go away and know that engaging with First Nations people is, is yes, it's hard. They're going to make mistakes, but it's not because of them. It's just because of the situation. Yeah. I mean, it obviously can be because of you if you're entirely doing <laughs> the wrong thing. But, you know. Not um, always. No, no. And we want to move forward too. There seems to be some assumption sometimes that we're perfectly happy living in the situation that many of us face. Like, of course not. We, you know, just like any other Australian, we want the best for our children, for our families. We want to be able to live good and happy lives, but we want to be able to do that as Indigenous peoples too. We don't want to have to give up, you know, our things that we've been forced to give up previously or that have been impacted by these things. So, you know, the fundamental thing is about how you build a respectful and responsible relationship going forward. And if you take that in as your, um, you know, your guiding principle and you make that clear, then think, you know, it'll be a much more successful process, not only for yourself, but, you know, your organisation and the country too. Brilliant. Well, thank you for your time. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Bang the Table Talks. Join us for future conversations as we explore the capacity and insight that online engagement has to offer. Check out our other learning resources at bangthetable.com.